Russia has suffered key reversals on the battlefield as Kiev's forces have counterattacked and seized back a wide swathe of territory. My guest this week from Moscow is Andrei Kolesnikov, senior fellow at the think tank, the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. As anger mounts among some of Vladimir Putin's supporters, how vulnerable is he? He's ready to stay in power at all costs because uh, he uh, considers himself as a Tsar and the Tsar has his own mission and he must return this great greatness uh, to Russia. But the conflict has split Russian society and radicalized both supporters and opponents of the war. How serious are the calls from local lawmakers for Putin to resign and even face treason charges? And will Russia pose more of a threat to the West if it wins the war or loses? Andrei Kolesnikov in Moscow. Welcome to Conflict Zone. Thanks a lot. Seems clear that Ukraine has made some important military gains in recent days. As things stand now, how big a setback are these Ukrainian advances for the Kremlin? Uh, you know, it's, it's a hard question because uh, I don't think that Kremlin has, uh, has a ready answer uh, to uh, this counteroffensive. Military answer, I mean, and political one, and psychological in order to... Uh, in order to let's say, justify uh, possible problems. Uh, uh, for the beginning, they said that this is a regrouping of uh, troops, not more. Uh, but I think uh, Kremlin is not ready uh, to make any concessions in any diplomatic sense, in, in the political sense. It is ready for further war of attrition. It could be continued, and uh, Kremlin until now has this kind of uh, resources, uh, I mean, primarily military resources. So this is uh, kind of a, to be continued. Do you expect a marked escalation from the Kremlin in response to Ukrainian moves? Uh, I think it's possible it could be natural answer from uh, Kremlin's side, uh, given uh, their thinking is uh, uh, very, very militarized and very aggressive. And in that sense, I think they are prepared preparing right now uh, something military. But at the same time, they must find wars for different groups of uh, the population, because there are a lot of hopes uh, among people who are supporting Putin, uh, supporting the war primarily. And uh, Putin has problems with, with the support from, from this very group, uh, because among supporters of Putin, there is a group of and a group of doves. Uh, uh, this group of doves, uh, they feel kind of aphatic and they want uh, peace talks and vice versa. So uh, Putin must describe, uh, or military authorities, uh, they must describe the situation in proper words. Uh, but uh, the total indifference of the population saves uh, right now uh, Putin's problem, Putin's uh, I can say that this is kind of a could uh, suck impasse, but a very problematic situation for him. Um, I take it from what you say, there will be people 
even among the elite who are asking themselves if Vladimir Putin is still up to the job. We have the Chechen leader Ramzan Kadyrov, who doesn't hide his anger. He said, if today or tomorrow changes are not made in the conduct of the military operation, I'll be forced to go to the country's leadership to explain the situation on the ground. That's pretty direct and that's pretty insulting, isn't it, to the president? Uh, to some extent, he has, despite the fact that Kadyrov always stressed that he's a soldier of Putin and simply obeying him and he can. Uh, implement uh, any command from uh, Kremlin. Uh, paradoxically, he's, he's um, uh, such a sincere uh, person when uh, he's describing the current situation. Uh, I think he will get uh, some signs or command from Kremlin to, to be mute on this topic because it's too sensitive for Kremlin. Uh, this is an excess of one of the persons who are involved in this uh, terrible disaster, in this terrible conflict. Uh, I don't think that it could be serious. Yes, it, yes, it is noticeable for a lot of people, uh, but at the same time, time generally does not change uh, the public opinion around Putin, does not change the situation, and it does not influence uh, the uh, military decisions. Uh, another people are responsible for uh, military answer to uh, Ukrainians. So it's, uh, it's symptomatic, but it is still not so dangerous uh, for Putin uh, when we are talking about possible discontent inside the elite. I think uh, we can witness uh, uh, different kind of discontents, but People are trying to be mute in this elite uh, because uh, they scare. Uh, they are afraid of um, their position inside this establishment. We're also seeing for the first time political moves against the president from elected representatives, albeit at local municipal level in both Moscow and St. Petersburg. Public calls for him to resign and in the case of St. Petersburg calls for him to face charges of treason. Isn't it extraordinary, these moves, and how serious do you think they are, or how serious could these become? This is a very interesting phenomenon, because uh, politically it is not so uh, important uh, for Kremlin. It is not a danger for Kremlin of any kind, uh, because municipal deputies do not play any significant role in this uh, political system. But at the same time, it's symptomatic that uh, people don't feel fear in a situation when they could be persecuted for this kind of letters. And all the atmosphere in the country is very sultry. And everyone who express uh, his own or view on, on the situation could be persecuted by, by the authorities uh, in terms of even uh, uh, a criminal code or administrative code. It's unpleasant. But nevertheless, uh, people express such a fatigue from the situation that they won't openly, voluntarily uh, express discontent with Putin's actions. This is something new, especially from the side of uh, municipal deputies. Uh, and maybe this is a new sign of uh, growing uh, uh, discontent inside uh, not only elite, but inside uh, the society as such. 
because municipal deputies are closer to the society than any kind of another uh, state level of uh, deputies, regional level or federal level. What happens if these actions spread um, to other municipal authorities or to Moscow itself? Um, how dangerous could that be for the president? Uh, these people should be suppressed. Uh, and um, for the moment, nobody paid a lot of attention to it. Um, but it is possible that uh, all those people who sign this kind of letters could be in trouble. Uh, uh, I'm afraid that it couldn't be spread all around the whole Russia. Uh, in that case, yes, it's dangerous prim primarily not for Putin, but for uh, deputies. Uh, again, but it's, it's really important that civil society is still here and civil society is still expressing it's used not only uh, using such a tool as coming to the streets or uh, broadcasting as journalists are doing it, but uh, uh, writing letters uh, to top authorities uh, accusing Putin in, in, in a state uh, treason. Uh, this is an important sign. Up till now, Moscow has done everything or seems to have done everything to pretend that life is just the same as ever in Russia. No mass funerals, no weeping mothers on television. The ballet and opera seasons are getting underway in Moscow. Museums, galleries are open. The party boats are going up and down the uh, Moscow River. Is this fictional normality about to come to a sudden end? Do you think we'll see full-scale mobilization now? Yeah, this is the right term, fictional normality. Uh, Putin creates uh, this impression and uh, his people are creating it. Especially it's important in, in big cities uh, because, uh, for instance, Sabanin, who is one of the allies of Putin, he's quite, uh, he's a good, let's say, uh, state manager. Uh, Moscow uh, must live so normal life in order to be distracted from uh, all these atrocities and disaster in the Ukrainian front. And the right step from Putin's side was not to announce general military mobilization, uh, military draft, because it could provoke discontent among uh, middle classes, among millions of people who are living in uh, big cities or middle-sized cities. They don't want to go to war. Uh, we can talk about, uh, let's say, couch uh, troops, which are sitting their homes watching TV, uh, uh, indifferently supporting uh, the special operation, but at the same time they don't think about, uh, about the involvement into real war, into trenches. And this is more for uh, poor uh, population, poor groups of uh, population, for people from uh, ethnic republics, distanced provinces who could be soldiers in this war. So here are two tracks uh, for uh, this is a dualism in, in, in brains of uh, Russians, especially in um, middle classes. Here is one track. I am living my private life uh, as it was always. I am concentrating on uh, surviving. And the, another track is a state's track. Uh, uh, so people, uh, Putin initiated this war. Okay, he knows better. I will not pay too much attention to his arguments, but he's always right. I will support it indifferently, not fiercely. So, uh, and uh, Putin 
uh, gives me an opportunity to concentrate on my own uh, businesses, on my, my own problems. Uh, I don't wait for any help from him, from him, but it's quite good that he doesn't involve into my problems. Uh, so uh, it is uh, useful for Putin himself because uh, uh, he can continue this war and not paying too much attention, not, not attracting too much attention to, to the atrocities. Uh, people are trying not to pay uh, a lot of attention to uh, bad news. They want to be on the side of goodness, not on the side of evil. And because of that, they uh, they prefer to block uh, bad information for them. And it's quite good for Putin right now. You're one of the sharpest Russian critics of the war in Ukraine and Vladimir Putin, one of the sharpest critics still writing and, and still in Russia. Do you not feel under threat yourself, personally, doing this? Uh, you know, there is such a, such a special term, uh, scholar at risk. <laughs> so I could say that I'm a scholar at risk. Uh, but there are very different reasons for different people uh, to stay in Russia uh, or to leave Russia. And I know a lot of my colleagues and friends who are still here. Some of them are persecuted. Uh, some of them are arrested. For instance, uh, my colleague, uh, political scientist and politician, uh, Leonid Gozman. But this is uh, only an administrative uh, persecution for him. Uh, for these people, it's better to leave uh, Russia. And in the case of persecution for any person here, it's better not to play this game with the authorities because it's dangerous from the point of view of physical health and possible arrest, etc., etc. But uh, uh, from the point of view of uh, real research, uh, from the point of view of understanding what is happening here, and from uh, the point of view of your own attitude toward this regime, uh, this is quite important to be here. So this is my country. Uh, my country is not equal to Putin's country. And uh, I prefer to be here because uh, I don't feel any, gui any guilt. Uh, I don't feel any responsibility for uh, Putin's atrocities. So this is my, my choice. Uh, but again, uh, in some circumstances, uh, it could be inevitable uh, to, to, to leave the country, just like it was inevitable for primarily uh, prominent journalists uh, to leave Russia in order to contribute information, real alternative information for the Russian population. They can do it uh, from inside. Until now, I can broadcast and, and I can write, but it could finish uh, in any moment. Putin doesn't scare you, though, does he? He's a real dictator. Uh, who is sincerely sure that nobody can uh, shatter his authority, uh, that he, he has mission to create new sovereignty, new greatness uh, to Russia. And uh, he must consolidate people around him and people who are not ready to be consolidated. They are simply national traitors, fiscal column enemies, foreign agents, etc. He is not the president of the whole Russia and all Russians uh, in that sense. Uh, maybe he respects uh, his team, uh, he respects his enemies, 
but it doesn't mean that they couldn't be persecuted because of uh, this uh, respectable status. So uh, he's uh, sure that he's doing everything right. You've written at length about your country, past, present, future, but I was struck by how you recently connected the dots. Russia, you said, is unlucky with its future because it's unlucky with its past. It suggests your country is chained to, what, a violent history and can't find its way to breaking free from that? Is that what you meant to convey? I mean that one of the grounds for Putin's ideology is uh, the glorious past and very specific interpretation of the history, uh, which is really a falsification of uh, your own history because uh, he takes dark pages of this of this past, and he's whitewashing. For instance, he's whitewashing uh, uh, the Stalinist time. Uh, and uh, in that sense, historical policy, for him, this is a tool for governing this country. Uh, he creates false uh, glorious past, and uh, this is a ground for consolidating around him. He's an inheritor of this greatness. Uh, so if we'll take a real past, if we'll if you could be ready for uh, any kind of uh, uh, normal reading of this past, we can uh, uh, make conclusions from it, bad conclusions, horrible conclusions, but this is a ground for going somewhere uh, for the future, just like, just like it was in perestroika times we, when we, uh, we uh, became to... Uh, to know something about ourselves, about our past, and it was, it became an open window for the future, for moving from a horrible past to a normal future, to westernize it and modernize it, Russia. Right now, it's everything is vice versa. So it's very important to recreate the understanding of uh, your own past, being able to know and to admit that some pages in this past was horrible, were horrible. You said that Putin whitewashes the Stalinist period now, but it wasn't always that way. Five years ago, he stood by the so-called Wall of Grief in Moscow and said it was important to remember the repression that took place in Soviet society. And now children uh, are taught in your schools that the old Soviet Union didn't repress anybody. What changed Putin, do you think? Uh, I, I don't believe in the evolution of Putin's views, absolutely. In the year 2000, when he only began his uh, uh, way to, to power, uh, I compared him with Mussolini in terms that he can uh, uh, restore some totalitarian uh, features uh, which were typical for our past. Uh, and uh, he simply adapted to uh, current circumstances. From the beginning, he was inheritor of Yeltsin, and he, he had to uh, support some uh, ideas about democracy, uh, good relations with the West, etc., etc. But now he's absolutely sincere. He's free from politeness. He lost his shame uh, absolutely. Uh, he disrupted all the ties with the West. So he's the Tsar of Russia, and uh, he expresses uh, content with it. Uh, so 
for him, uh, repressions, uh, this is really, he admits uh, he, he's ready to say that there were repressions. But at the same time, uh, he can't uh, admit and he can't allow to his people to admit that uh, it was so significant in the history. Maybe it was a tool which uh, could uh, help uh, Stalin to rule, uh, to create an order. Uh, so it's kind of a contradictory approach to it. But uh, nevertheless, uh, right now, he whitewashed uh, everything. Last week, your group published research showing that the war had divided rather than united Russians, and both sides had been radicalized by this conflict. What do you think will be the lasting effects of this polarization now in Russian society? Yes, Russia is split. Uh, here are good Russians and bad Russians. As I said, uh, anybody who is against us uh, is not our ally. And uh, in that sense, we can say about citizens of the second sort uh, in Russia, label it as, uh, as foreign agents or simply people who are not uh, trustworthy for uh, top authorities. Uh, and yes, the problem is that polarization uh, leads to radicalization of the views. People who were supporting Putin are supporting him fiercely right now, and Putin, who were not supporting him, also became more uh, fierce uh, non-supporters of him. There are some splits inside uh, different groups. Uh, as I said, even among supporters of Putin, there are uh, people who prefer, for instance, more hawkish approach to the war, and the group uh, which prefers less hawkish uh, approach. But generally speaking, uh, this is a split. And uh, it, it is leading to, let's say, a uh, hybrid civil war uh, between uh, Russian groups of the population. Not a physically, uh, it, it, it is not visible as a f physical, let's say, uh, real, uh, real war between different groups who, who are fighting with each other. Uh, it, uh, it is more about uh, attitudes towards non-supporters of Putin as, as again, uh, to, as to, to the citizens of a second sort. Uh, it is Mr. Kolesnikov, um, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but we're running out of time. I just want to, to get to a couple more points. You say that Russia is at a dead end, a historical dead end, as you put it. What did you mean by that? Can't, can't move forward, can't move backwards? If, if it's true that it's at a dead end, what happens next? You know, this nation must uh, recreate itself. Uh, if you will visit Moscow, you will see that everything is OK. Uh, but I feel in this atmosphere something um, kind of a despair, disillusion. Uh, people are very apathetical. And uh, in order to get new incentives for new development, we need uh, we need new government, let's say, such a simple uh, approach. Uh, Putin must disappear uh, in a political way, I mean, in order to get, in order to find an exit from uh, this uh, dead end. 
in order to get new incentive uh, for new development, for modernization of this country. And one more problem is uh, the problem of collective responsibility, for sure. We are waiting for a lot of discussions about, uh, and we are involved in these discussions right now, about collective uh, responsibility and its difference with collective guilt. Are we responsible for it? So we will be in a situation uh, uh, just like a uh, German nation after the Second World War. What happens if Putin can't claim victory, if the reversals on the battlefield continue? Will he pose more of a threat to the West if he wins or if he loses? I think it's, uh, it's absolutely equal. Uh, he can be dangerous uh, being victorious, and he can be dangerous being uh, in in a in in, in, a, in defeat uh, situation. Uh, but uh, he really could be cornered, and he could be um, let's say insulted by uh, by this uh, defeat. And in that sense. Uh, he could be more, gen uh, more dangerous because he has a nuclear weapon. Uh, this is the main problem. But generally speaking, uh, he can uh, describe his defeat as a victory for the population. And population uh, will accept it, uh, again, uh, indifferently, because uh, uh, here is a fatigue from this war and people are waiting for, for the end of the story. Uh, at the same time, they understand that it could be prolonged, uh, prolonged war, and they morally uh, are ready to the prolongation of this disaster. Very briefly, do you think he's just desperate to stay in power at all costs? Yes, he's ready to stay in power at all costs because, uh, again, he uh, considers himself as a Tsar, and this Tsar has his own mission, and he must return this great greatness uh, to Russia. Unfortunately, this is really so. This is his psychology. Andrei Kolesnikov, it's been good to have you on the program. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you so much.